In 19th century France, a new painting trend turned the art world upside down. Impressionism. Characterized by coarse brushwork, mundane subject matter, and dramatic lighting, the movement was largely a reaction to the stuffy attitudes that dominated fine art at the time. Key to this visual style was the use of intensely colored pigments that chemists had only discovered a few years earlier. Chromium provided dark, saturated greens. Cobalt offered bright blue tones. But the cream of this chromatic crop was cadmium. The yellow, orange, and red hues offered by Element 48 could brilliantly light up a canvas, cover another color with perfect opacity, and remain vivid decades after the last brush stroke dried. The magnificent works painted by Monet, Morisot, and Cassatt are just as breathtaking today as they were a century and a half ago. For every golden sunset, broad-brimmed hat, and carpet of blooming poppies, we can thank cadmium. But much like the dizzying patterns on a tropical tree frog's skin, or the bright flowers of the lethal oleander, we could read cadmium's eye-catching colors as a warning. With today's element, we wander into the most toxic territory on the periodic table. Welcome to Poisoner's Corridor. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we're taking great pains to study cadmium. Cadmium's association with that striking yellow color goes back further than the Impressionists. It was that very property that originally caught the eyes of two German chemists, Friedrich Strohmeyer and Karl Hermann, who each discovered the element independently before teaming up to study the new metal. Several names were proposed. Vodanium after an old Germanic god, Millennium after a Latin word for its color. Klaprothium for the recently deceased Martin Heinrich Klaproth. But in the end, it was Strohmeyer's cadmium that stuck, a name that points to its discovery within zinc carbonate, also known as calamine. It turns out that cadmium is found almost exclusively in the company of zinc, which makes a lot of sense. Both elements live in group 12 of the periodic table. There aren't any mines dedicated to collecting cadmium because more than enough is produced as a byproduct of the profitable zinc industry. But cadmium isn't always discovered so deliberately alongside its upstairs neighbor. Shipham is an English village of about a thousand people. Mining was an important industry there for centuries, 
but by 1979, the mines were closed. The only people working the land then were a few schoolchildren growing vegetables for a class project. That was going fine for a while, but soon, teachers and students alike noticed that their vegetables were looking a little unwell. The main symptom? The leaves of these plants were not green, but rather a sickly shade of yellow. Subsequent analysis, by professionals, not the children, indicated that the soil contained high levels of zinc, lead, and cadmium. All those centuries of mining, with its associated water runoff and pollution, had contaminated the land all around the little town. Thankfully, those levels weren't so high as to cause a public health crisis. The people of Shippam definitely had more cadmium in their bodies than any doctor would like to see, but not so much as to cause illness. Sadly, the people of Japan's Toyama Prefecture were not so fortunate. Much like Shippam, Toyama is a region that's historically been known for its zinc and lead mines. Unlike Shippam, it's also an important agricultural center for the island nation. A significant portion of Japan's rice is grown in the area. In the past, much of that rice was irrigated with water that mining companies had carelessly filled with heavy metals like cadmium. By 1912, the effects of this contamination were starting to become noticeable. That's when some of the area's older women started exhibiting symptoms of no known disease. Their legs and backs would throb and ache, soon all the bones in their body would soften and easily snap. Anemia and kidney problems would cause further unpleasantness before, finally, death. It was a long, drawn-out fate, and all the locals knew was that once a person was afflicted, there was no recovery. The defining feature of the syndrome, from onset to bitter end, was the immense pain that racked the sufferer's body. It became known as Itayataibyo, which roughly translates to ouch-ouch disease. The problem became more pronounced over the next several decades. Concerned citizens were routinely brushed aside by the prefecture's mining companies until 1972, when a class action lawsuit ordered those companies to pay for medical care, pollution monitoring, and reparations to those who had contracted the disease. Nowadays, the region is much cleaner, but the legacy of Itai disease won't be soon forgotten by those who lived with it for so long. Stories and mysteries of death, 
disease, and murder most foul are going to become much more common as we linger in the southeast corner of the periodic table. Depending on how you feel about that, I'm sorry, and you're welcome. Sam Keen, author of the atomic biography The Disappearing Spoon, calls this region Poisoner's Corridor. The tail ends of periods 5 and 6 loosely comprise this band of chemical ne'er-do-wells. While the halogens and alkalis are dangerous for their reactivity, and heavier elements can deliver a fatal dose of radiation, elements like antimony, thallium, mercury, and cadmium are hazardous due to their toxicity. It's been a while since we've name-checked valence electrons, but once again, they are to blame. These metals, large and stable, are very flexible in how many electrons they'll give or receive to their neighbors. This allows them to easily dissolve and sneak inside our body's cells, disguised as elements our bodies actually need, and wreak havoc from within. Sometimes these ill effects have a sudden onset. Other times, it can take years before the damage is apparent. It all depends on exactly what biological process the element affects the most. In this case, element 48 mimics its more honorable sibling, zinc, and latches on to an enzyme called metallothionin. That little mouthful takes cadmium on a one-way trip, sometimes to the liver or the bones, but usually to the kidneys, where, ideally, it would soon be disposed of. But in a cruel twist, the toxic substance sticks to the kidneys like flypaper, and practically never lets go. A cadmium atom can inhabit the body for decades, making even minuscule subsequent exposures increasingly dangerous. Even if it doesn't poison the body outright, cadmium that sticks around for long enough can cause healthy cells to turn cancerous. Clearly, we're dealing with some nasty stuff here. Luckily, environmental regulations are a little stiffer than they were 50 years ago, and yellow paint only accounts for six-thousandths of one percent of cadmium usage. When the element does turn up in consumer products, like in 2010 when McDonald's accidentally sold 12 million cadmium-laced drinking glasses, it tends to be big news. We're fortunate that for the most part, cadmium is easy to avoid. And yet, over a billion people siphon the element into their bodies every day. Along with ammonia, benzene, hydrogen cyanide, formaldehyde, and arsenic, cadmium is among the many harmful chemicals that make up a cigarette. By and large, cigarettes aren't maliciously infused with these chemicals to increase their lethality, because 
Turns out, drawing breath through a thousand-degree tube of flaming tobacco is plenty lethal on its own. For instance, the tobacco plant naturally absorbs a lot of cadmium from soil, sort of like the children's vegetables back in Shippum. Cigarette smokers typically have twice as much cadmium in their bodies as non-smokers. None of this is new information, of course. Cigarettes have had a deadly reputation for at least half a century, but their raw addictive power has kept the industry afloat nonetheless. But we live in the high-tech world of 2019, and no longer must one ignite the leaf of the tobacco plant to funnel nicotine into their lungs. Millions of people around the world now use electronic cigarettes, devices that atomize a liquid solution of intoxicants for the user to inhale, and often look like part of a Darth Vader costume. Because e-cigarettes produce an aerosol vapor rather than smoke, the activity is commonly called vaping. Chinese pharmacist Han Lick introduced the first e-cigarette in 2003, intending it to be a tool to assist people trying to quit cigarettes. Advocates still promote vaping as a smoking cessation aid, as well as a healthier alternative to cigarettes. Whether the product successfully achieves either of these goals remains the subject of vigorous debate. When it comes to the specific subject of cadmium poisoning, e-cigs might actually carry a substantially higher risk than traditional cigarettes. The solder used in the construction of some of these devices, especially cheap ones, is responsible for dozens of known cases of cadmium pneumonitis, a disease similar to itai itai. The association does not end there, I'm afraid. Studies of the market's less reputable cartridges have found that they routinely contain heavy metals, like arsenic, lead, and yes, cadmium. Scandalously shoddy manufacturing processes are to blame here, but really, it shouldn't be too surprising that blasting particulate matter down your throat is an unhealthy practice. Some elements, like oxygen, nitrogen, and argon, should be collected with your lungs. Cadmium is not among them. There are other ways to add today's element to your collection. If you have access to a machine shop, for instance, you might be able to get your hands on wood's metal. Disappointingly, this is not some chimeric hybrid of lumber and mineral, but rather an alloy of bismuth, lead, tin, and cadmium. It takes its name from Barnabas Wood, the man who discovered it. The material melts at a relatively frosty 70 degrees Celsius, making it ideal for use with delicate objects, or as a safety release on pressurized canisters in case of fire. 
Perhaps the most widespread use of Element 48 is in nickel-cadmium batteries, which have powered countless toys over the years, like RC cars. But their use has been steadily declining due to the whole toxicity issue we've been discussing this whole time. It might be worth rooting around in the back of your closet to see if you can give any old relics a new home in your Museum of Chemistry. In any of these cases, you'll want to exercise more caution than you'd need with an element like silver or calcium. Even touching some of these materials is enough to make you very sick. In the end, you might just want to stick with a tube of paint. Cadmium remains the definitive yellow for modern-day artists. And after all, it could be worse. For thousands of years, the dominant yellow paint was called orpiment, a compound of sulfur and arsenic. That color was so incredibly poisonous that it was a major relief when cadmium yellow finally provided a safe alternative. Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements. Music is by Kai Engel. I'm excited to tell you that I'll be appearing on SciTech Now this week to discuss the podcast and some of my favorite stories about the elements. Check listings for your local PBS station, or visit episodictable.com later this week to watch the interview. To learn the only six colors Monet ever used in his paintings, visit episodictable.com slash cd. Next time, we'll go soft on Indium. Until then, this is T.R. Appleton reminding you that this is a non-smoking program. Smoking is prohibited on the entire podcast, including the lavatories. Tampering with, disabling, or destroying the lavatory smoke detectors is prohibited by law.